You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm Aaron Dietrich, your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond's content partner. Each week, we explore some aspect of the past, present, or future of intelligence and espionage. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy the show. Coming up next on SpyCast. There were plenty of reasons in hindsight which the FBI could have looked at these things and say, hmm, maybe we ought to take a look at this person. This episode of SpyCast is a recording of a recent program held here at the International Spy Museum in collaboration with our friends at CBS News and Paramount. To accompany their new podcast, Agent of Betrayal, we hosted a panel of experts to discuss the story and historical significance of the Robert Hansen case. How did an FBI agent sworn to protect America's most precious secrets instead become a damaging and deadly mole? Well, you'll have to keep listening to find out. The original podcast on intelligence and espionage since 2006, we are SpyCast. Now sit back. Relax and enjoy the show. I just wanted to start off tonight by saying, uh, first, I wish to thank all of my family, friends and co-workers who have uh, expressed their support for me. Uh, I also want to express thanks to those who have supported my family. I'm humbled by your generosity, your goodness uh, and your goodwill. Um, This is not me, Uh, it's not an Oscar uh, acceptance speech. This is the beginning, believe it or not, of Robert Hansen's letter of apology, which we have here at the museum. Now just think about that as the beginning of a letter of apology. So (laughs) I dug up, just for sports sake, Martha Stewart, her letter, her apology. Today is a shameful day, it's shameful for me. Uh, Will Smith, after slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars, (laughs) violence in all its forms is poisonous and destructive. My behaviour was inexcusable. Very different beginning of an apology (laughs) from Robert Hansen. So we're going to discuss this, but we're talking about a very kind of interesting and unique individual. Um, Okay, so I just want to briefly introduce our four speakers. So uh, first the host of the podcast, the, the man who's been pushing it along uh, at CBS, Major Garrett. I'm sure many of you know who he is. I know our director of development, Laura Wright, she said that she was coming along tonight because she's, quote, a huge fan. 
so I don't know if she's in the audience, but uh, I know that I know that there's at least someone here who's a, a major fan of yours. The major uh, major's been at U.S. News and World Report, CNN, Fox, uh, the chief Washington correspondent for CBS, uh, and one of his many claims to fame is he was dressed down once by President Obama. So I'm pretty sure that there's some saying out there if you're not. If you're not P- POing a president, you're probably not doing your job as a journalist in Washington properly. <laughs> uh, but he, he's also the host of the Takeout podcast, uh, which is really excellent, a weekly podcast on politics uh, and culture. I think he's really embraced the podcast art form and obviously with the, the podcast that we're here to discuss tonight. Next, John Fox, uh, the FBI's uh, PhD level historian since 2003. So this is his 20th anniversary. Uh, if he sticks around for another 28 years, he'll catch up with how long J. Edgar Hoover was at the FBI. Uh, um, 20, uh, he teaches at Catholic University and he's, a, he's an institution almost as much as the, the FBI for historians. Uh, next, David Major. Uh, I'm sure many of you will know who he is. 24 years in the FBI specialising in counterintelligence, uh, involved in over 100 espionage cases. That would be quite an interesting book. Uh, And the first FBI official to be appointed to the NSC, uh, and I believe that he actually briefed the Gipper, uh, President Reagan himself. Uh, And last but not least, David Charney, uh, an expert on the mind of the spy. He's practised psychiatry for almost 50 years. Uh, He's a veteran of the US Air Force, and a CIA referral consultant. And he's also worked on another important spy case, that of uh, Errol Pitts. So we've got a stellar panel here tonight, uh, and I'm really looking forward to digging into the discussion. So if you don't mind, just briefly put your hands together for, for our awesome panel. So I think it's just important to start off. Tell us about the genesis of this podcast, Major. Because I know that during COVID, a lot of people were working on their sourdough yeah. bread recipe and uh, playing Animal Crossing and stuff. But you had you had other things in mind, right? Uh, I did learn to make sourdough bread. I didn't pick up an instrument I hadn't touched since high school. Um, I didn't hike the Appalachian Trail. Lots of people did very interesting things during lockdown. Um, my team and I put together a lot of different podcasts. Uh, during lockdown, one was a daily podcast on the coronavirus task force briefings. Then we morphed into a weekly documentary podcast. And then we landed on the idea that was completely out of our experience and comfort zone, which was an episodic serialized podcast that told one story and told it as comprehensively as possible. And before I say another thing, I want the three members of my team who are here to stand up and be recognized. Arden Fari. Sarah Cook and Jamie Benson. Please stand up and give applause. Please. Because nothing we've achieved, and those of you who have listened to it, if you like it, the reason it's so good is because I have such an incredibly formidable team behind me. Uh, and I want to make sure I recognize them up front. So uh, when we tried to figure out what we would tell, what kind of story we would tell, Arden and I principally had a list. And we wintered it down to two. One was the Robert Hansen story, and one was Anthrax after 9-11. Both very compelling stories with tremendous life and death circumstances, 
They captured the public's imagination in different ways. And I was pushing for anthrax and Arden was pushing for Hansen. And then at the end, when we were going to make the decision, we switched sides. Suddenly I started pushing for Hansen and he started pushing for anthrax. Ultimately, we decided on Hansen because Hansen's a person, not a thing. Anthrax is a thing. And I believe we made the right choice. And then from that point, two years ago, we decided to set a very high goal. Several books have been written about the Hansen case. I'm sure many in this audience are familiar with them. David Weiss is obviously the expert of all experts, no longer with us, but he's written two enormously important books. Other books were written, a couple of movies. It's not as if this story hadn't been told in popular culture. It had. But our belief was there was, for this particular medium, podcasting, a unique opportunity to tell it in a way it had never been told before, with characters and voices and perspectives that encompassed this entire story. All of its complexity, all of its suspense, all of its bureaucratic blindness, all of its contradictions. And so our goal was that this would not only be popular in the podcast space, that people would like it, who were not aficionados in the surveillance world or even in the true crime world, that it would be popular there but it would also be revealing to people in the community. And happily, we've gotten emails from people who thought they knew this case and do know this case very well, who told us the thing I most wanted to hear from them, that they learned something as well. And that was the goal. That's, that's why I was going to ask what kind of feedback you've had so far. I, I think, I hope most of the people in the audience have listened to the podcast that if they haven't, you know, I'm not just saying this because Major's sitting next to me, but it's really excellent and you really should listen to it. But for anybody that hasn't, could you just give them like a very 90 second overview? Sure. Tell them what, what we're sort of in the middle of it at the moment. Uh, just give them the narrative arc and how you break it all down. The, the story is essentially this. There's a FBI special agent who in every public way masks who he actually is. He's a virulent anti-communist who is selling secrets damaging secrets to the Soviets. He is a profoundly, visibly religious Catholic, goes to mass every single day, betrays his church, betrays his family, betrays his children in sickening ways. Um, As David Charney told us, he is the most psychologically compartmented person he has ever met, meaning we all have different ways we present ourselves and ways we act at work or at the gym or even a church or something. We have different masks and different clothing, but we're not that different. Robert Hansen was dramatically different minute by minute, day by day. And all those complexities and compartmented aspects of him made, make this a fascinating story. And the people who flow through it and the way that he was able to use his particular approach to both computers and espionage, allowed him to do this work for three different segments, twice with the Soviets, once with the Russians, evaded detection by the FBI, sometimes sitting in the very meetings where FBI's colleagues were talking about the great mole hunt to find who was handing off all this incredibly damaging information. He's sitting there nodding along, and he knows all along he's the person. That's the kind of drama that you can't really find 
anywhere other than in cinema, but this is all true. And the unraveling of that and the telling of that leading up to the FBI's realization that it is Hanson, how they find the way to capture him, catch him red-handed, catch him in the act, and everything that flows through that runs through the entire podcast. Just uh, moving on to uh, John, could you tell us, in terms of the history of the FBI, he's been called many times the most damaging spy in FBI history. It's probably a stupid question, but that's still true. Well, as far as I know, yeah, I would certainly say that it's true. The Bureau, for a number of reasons, doesn't claim a penetration for many years. Now, David Wise and, and others have written about perhaps one in the 60s, and certainly the first publicly known one was 1984. And, uh, you know, compared to Hanson, it was, it was a nothing um, case in, in so many ways. And so over the years, as far as penetrations had gone, the Bureau had very few compared to some other agencies, certainly. But just the, the scope of what Hanson did puts him up there in, in the top, you know, two or three, certainly in the, the country's history, much less the FBI's. Mm-hmm. And could you just very briefly uh, contextualize the FBI in terms of counterintelligence? There's different counterintelligence agencies. Sure. There's uh, different lines of responsibility. And could you just tell them how this all shapes out and how important FBI counterintelligence yeah. is? Absolutely. I- all agencies in the intelligence community of the United States have a counterintelligence function. Um, some of them are more security-oriented or kind of espionage-oriented. The FBI's is a broader one in the sense of trying to get into the minds of the hostile intelligence services that are trying to penetrate our government. But also, because of its law enforcement functions, we have the responsibility <coughs> of investigating all these cases as violations of the federal law. And so unlike any other agency in the government, we are doing both that counterintelligence and um, legal counterespionage side of things. CIA obviously has a very robust counterintelligence program, but it's aimed at the other side. Um, And of course, preventing penetrations of themselves. But if they find a spy, we have to come in because somebody has to gather the evidence to bring that forth in court if that's where it's eventually going to end up. So the, the FBI plays a unique role, not only in the United States. There, there are very, very few agencies around the world that even resemble that. You know, MI5 you know, is an agency without law enforcement responsibilities, so very different from the FBI. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be interesting now to hear from someone that's walked the walk, uh, someone who was a counterintelligence uh, FBI uh, agent, someone who was a friend, colleague and supervisor of Robert Hansen. And I think it's fantastic to have you on stage here tonight. So could you just tell us, how did you first meet him, Dave? Um, well, that's a very interesting question. <laughs> um, I joined the Bureau to do counterintelligence. <laughs> and I was fortunate to do it at every level you can do it. I was a street agent for 10 years, and then I was in executive management. I was at the White House on the National Security Council, working, uh, meeting Bob, uh, meeting the president, briefing him on cases. So I saw it at many, many different levels. Um, and like I said, I joined the FBI to do counterintelligence. Little did I know that I would end up in the middle of the most dangerous spy we ever had in American history, at least from an FBI perspective. He was 
he and I met first in uh, 1982 when he was on the hall across the hall from me, and he was in the budget unit at that time, and I was in the training unit, counterintelligence training unit, and I happened to be the SCI control officer. I actually briefed Bob into SCI, Sense of Compartment and Information. I became friends with Bob Hansen over the period of time, professional friends. Never went out to drinking with him. He doesn't wasn't that was not the nature of the relationship, but it was one that I enjoyed talking about. Bob had a really sharp mind, and he would come into my office and start talking about something, and that he would really challenge you to think about it. For example, he came in one time, and by the way, he never just enters your office. He came to the door and waited to be recognized. And so I'd sit and look up, and there he was, like a ghost. It was really a strange situation. But he said, you know, Dave, you know why the KGB always beats us and the FBI and the rest of the community? No, Bob, why? He says, because they practice OODA loops. Anybody here from the Air Force? Then you know what an OODA loop is. Everybody in the Air Force knows nobody else does. And that what is that? That means... That's how they train uh, attack pilots, a top gun. Uh, you observe, you reorient yourself, you make a decision, and you act. He says that's why they do it. And he ran his own case, I found out. he did. They handled him the way he wanted to be handled, like no other spy case I ever saw. He was in charge of his own individual case. And so that's why we have very interesting conversations because little did I know – that he had practical experience on what he was doing. So it was an interesting relationship we had. I knew him right up to the time he was arrested. Um, I didn't, my first reaction was not my Bob Hansen because I didn't know him as Robert Hansen, but that was a reaction I had to him that my Bob Hansen turns out to be the worst spy in American history uh, and a very good spy. I mean, good in the sense that his tradecraft was excellent. The Russians never knew his name, which is the right way to do it. So there's a lot of complexities in that. But I saw him at many different levels. Uh, my wife knew his wife. We went to bureau parties together. You know, that was the nature of our professional relationship. And so when he eventually was arrested, I had did feel as like I kicked in the stomach. That my, my friend, my colleague, the man who worked for me, he was my subordinate for a while, was a spy. And I'm a spy hunter. And people said, well, how kind of a spy hunter are you if he could operate it? That was a question I had to deal for a while. How, how can you be a good counterintelligence officer if you didn't know this guy was a spy? And I said, well, they didn't, pet, they didn't paint S on his head for it. You know, there was no obvious way to do it. That's how good he was. We had a lot of discussions about how do you catch spies. And he was very smart about things we should do. Very smart. So I had very good conversations with him. He had a very high IQ. I think it was like 132, something like that. But he had a very high IQ, very smart man, very thoughtful. Uh, he liked what we were doing. He liked the kind of inventive things I came up with in the Bureau to try to find spies, but not him. So it was, um, it was a very interesting part of my career. We'll be right back after this. Where were you when you found out the? Pardon? Where, where were you when you found out the news? <laughs> well, after I retired, I formed a company called the Center for Counterintelligence and Security Studies, and we do counterintelligence training. 
on everything you'd want. You want a course on Israeli intelligence, Russian intelligence, we'd have a course on that. And um, so I was, they were trying, the CIA was trying to build up their denial and deception program. So I put together a five-day course on denial and deception. And it takes me about a year to really put together a really good, solid course. And I was preparing for that course in our training room. People were coming in. They were sitting down. And someone came up to me and says, well, we found another spy. Now, that's not surprising. I've been in the spy chasing business my whole professional life. So the fact that there was another one, oh, okay, that's interesting. Where was it? In the FBI. Oh, really? Well, I've seen other spies in the FBI. Who was it? And the guy said, well, it was... Robert Philip Hansen. Well, I didn't know Robert Philip Hansen. I knew Bob Hansen. And so my initial reaction was, well, there was denial. So I went with one of my employees over, and they pulled up the screen of the TV, and there his picture comes up. My Bob Hansen in the picture is, is the spy. That was really, uh, that was a day. And so I went in and talked to class for about two hours about the significance of this. When was the last time that you spoke to him before he was arrested? That I spoke to him? When he came to my office looking for, he was, he came to my office in the summer of, before he was arrested, which was in uh, 2019, 2001. 2001, February. The day before that, the year before that, he had come to my office, kind of looking for a job. He was going to retire at some time. And he came and he looked awful. And I, and I told him, Bob, I knew him so well. He said, Bob, you look awful. What's the matter with you? Are you sick? No, I'm okay. But he was very depressed. He was assigned to the State Department. He says, they've just forgotten me out there. I'm not a part of anything anymore. So he was really down psychologically. And so we had a long conversation. I gave him some of my books that I put together, <laughs> which they found when they searched his car, threw my books in his, in, his, uh, in his trunk. One was on deception, by the way which he never taken out and read. <laughs> but it was, it was that environment that, that Bob Hansen was the last time I saw him. So he went on, and then I, never, I went to all, all the public hearings for him in court. In the, in, in the hearing. You never spoke to him again after he was arrested? I had a lot of discussions with my friends and my wife about, should I do that? And she said, he wants you to do that. And I said, I don't think I want to give him that. So I didn't do it. Uh, I, it was kind of interesting. It would, have been, it would have been interesting, but I would have known what he would have said. I knew him so well that I probably would have known what he had, would have said. But he, uh, I never went in to see him in prison. And I'm not going to see him now. <laughs> <laughs> and just, just briefly, how, how does that work for someone like you who was in the FBI when your friend and former colleague gets caught, does, does the finger of suspicion start falling on you? Are people no, looking through suspicion. They did come in and talk to me, obviously, for about two hours, two days, actually. One day, they came in, asked a lot of things they wanted to fill out. So I had a long conversation with the Bureau. I have taken eight polygraphs, so that was never an issue that we're going to polygraph you. There was never anything that I had done anything wrong. But they did do, they wanted to know what I knew about him and his case and so forth. And I was very cooperative with them. The people that interviewed me were my friends. I mean, because I was in the, in the middle of the counterintelligence business. I mean, and it's a small group to some degree. We all kind of know each other, especially from other agencies. We know each other. And so those are the people that interviewed me. 
And so I, I did that. It was fine. Then I started, one of the things I did is decided to put together a course on it because I do training and I, did, I do that now. It's amazing how many people still don't know the Bob Hansen case. I live in a 55 plus community at the, on the beach, which is good living, by the way. And they, people ask me, did you know that case? Yeah, I knew it very well. Well, I didn't know anything about it. I mean, it's in the media, but they didn't know anything about it. So I gave them a presentation at the community and they loved it. I had 155 people. Tell them about the podcast. The yeah, podcast. exactly. Yeah. I did. Get them to subscribe. Yeah. I always talk about the podcast. By the way, I want to compliment the three people in the back who did interviewed me. You did a wonderful job. I've been interviewed by a lot of people. You guys were straight and really, really, really professional. That's why I like the podcast because they are professional. Uh, the media people can be honest and they can be unhonest. Not very honest. And you guys have been, you're balanced. You didn't come out and have an agenda. Um, some news people do have an agenda. And I've certainly done that. I've been on probably 100 TV shows. And they come in and ask some really strange questions. CBS is the worst, by the way. <laughs> they are. Dan Rather, I would, Dan Rather became the persona non grata in my company because he was such a despicable human being. Well, I think... Anyway, I think, I think, I how think, do I really feel about it? <laughs> so I, 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 we've walked the story up to the Hanson being arrested. So I would like to then come on to David Charney. But just before we get there, I just want to come back, uh, Major... Dave there mentioned the budget and in the podcast. This this is really fascinating mm -hmm. that a lot of people wouldn't think about. Can you just tell them why that's significant? Right. So why would uh, working within the budget unit matter in a story like this? Well, interestingly, Robert Hansen had a couple of insights. One, he was, by even contemporary standards of the late 70s and early 80s, well ahead of almost every other American in terms of curiosity and functional comfortability with computers. And he was light years ahead of the FBI, light years ahead of the FBI. So he had that going for him. He also understood after a very brief time in the FBI, the unique visibility he could possess internally in the FBI if he was in the budget unit. Why? Because through the budget unit flowed every allocation for resources specifically resources related to surveillance, related to things about David Major's work and counterintelligence and things that are super mundane unless you're someone like Robert Hansen. What do I mean? Well, overtime allocations on a weekend. What does that suggest? Overtime for something of a high priority. What would that suggest? Surveillance. So by understanding all the budget line items... And having that visibility, Robert Hansen could, with very high levels of confidence, insulate himself from not only detection, but even the possibility of detection. And those were, to David Major's point about tradecraft, about his methodology, important ways in which he was an early success and then later a repetitive success. Let me add something to that. When he was there, I was a supervisor. So I saw what we had in the budget unit. And these are unsung heroes because the people in the budget unit know everything because you have to ask for the money. Then you have to tell Congress what you did with the money. 
and what success you had as a result of it. So not only what you did do, what you're going to do. And so he was in charge of the dedicated technical program. What's that? That's everything we do with technology and catching spies. And there's a lot of research that goes into that. And he knew all of that. So that by compromising that, everything we are working on that are going to be successful in the future, he knows and gives it to them. I mean, it's, people don't realize how much the people in the, in the budget unit know everything. And so that, that's what he did. He was in this perfect position as a perfect spy for a period of time to know everything we were working on, did work on, or going to work on. I, I, I think that that's really, really, really fascinating. Um, it's, it's almost like defensive forensic accounting. <laughs> you use the numbers to basically insulate yourself. Uh, and and let, let's go on to uh, David Charney now, because I think that this is this is really, really fascinating. How... how how clever was he? You know, you've been you've been in this business for a long time. You can, I'm, I'm sure you can tell the BS artists from the people that are really smart. Um, Hansen was known to be someone that thought he was the smartest person in the room. Was he as smart as he thought he was, or how would you like? Where would you put him? He's not as smart as he thought he was. He's very smart. Let me give you two anecdotes. The first one for the smart. On one occasion during the time that I met with him in jail, and bear in mind I met with him for a full year, usually two hours, and when I came into that room, Hansen started talking and didn't stop till I left. I said very little. He had a lot to say. So, are you? So, what's the first anecdote? He explained to me that if he wanted to, from jail, he could communicate with the KGB anytime he wanted. I said, how would you do that? He said, you know, they have a TV set built into the wall, uh, but I don't have any controls in the wall, but I have a remote that they give me. A remote is a device that uses infrared blinks. If I arranged for it, I could have a KGB agent two miles away through this narrow window that exists in that cell, and I could use Morse code, which I know, and I could communicate with that KGB agent. Who would have thought of that? I was floored. All right, so that's an example of how smart he was knowing technology. But it's also true that I know a bit of things about this and that. And weirdly enough, I know a bit about nuclear physics. Not a lot. And on one occasion, Bob was blowing off about some issue that could be described in metaphorical terms having to do with some features of nuclear physics and all that. And he went on, and I knew that he, he was saying that to anybody from the Bureau or from any walk of life except for physicists. Uh, they would be totally blown away and impressed. You, what would you say to that? Except I knew what that area of physics was, <laughs> and I knew that he had it wrong. <laughs> I didn't say that to him, but I registered it in my mind that, yes, he was very smart, but not quite as smart as he thought he was. 
And just in terms of your profession, uh, Dr. Charney, like, how would you label Robert Hansen? Like, you know, borderline personality, uh, schizophrenic, sociopathic, like, what, what kind of, what's the best way to describe him through the lens of your profession? He was a very complicated guy. <laughs> Even I know that. <laughs> I'll give you a job in my office. <laughs> hey, uh, all those fancy diagnoses, which I've heard about before, including other things like narcissistic or this or that, in my mind, I think of that as name-calling. It's the appearance of having some knowledge about psychiatry but it's very thin. Do I, do I have um, a formal diagnosis from the DSM-5? The answer is no, I do not. In fact, for the other spies that I worked with, of which there were three, only one carried a formal diagnosis in my mind, and that's one case that I cannot talk about. But I'm saying something to you that we're talking about a, a, a complicated person and more often than not, these days, when I encounter complex people like that, I'm letting go of psychiatric diagnoses, except where they're warranted. And I talk more about a question of the spirit of a person. That's more complicated, and I must admit it's indefinable. But I would say that he was a tortured spirit, a tortured spirit. How much of this, just before we move on, how much of this is related to his relationship with his father, which has been discussed and which gets discussed in the podcast? And I don't want to get to Star Wars, but you know, how how much was the cha- was the was the father the you know Well you asked an excellent <laughs> question there. And here's why. The first time that I meet any person in my field is a touchy Time because I don't know who they are. They don't know me. We're uneasy and we feel each other out. Uh, and that happened when I met for the first time in that special cell inside the Alexandria Detention Center, which is where all this occurred. And he uh, looked me over and launched immediately into a story from his childhood featuring his father, describing some argument or some trouble that occurred between the two of them. He may have been 10 or 11 or 12, I'm not sure. And the end of it is that his father rolled him up in a rug and kept him there for a while. And that was a humiliation for a boy that he couldn't bear up to. And the fact that that was the very first thing that he brought up, to me, explains the, the essential, troubling experience of his life growing up. And of course, I heard more details over time, but let's put it into a single word, belittling. When a father belittles a son, he is saying, in effect, no matter what you ever do, you'll never come close to how brilliant I am. And what's that as a message? 
to any boy growing up. A father should be a mentor, should be hoping that his son will exceed him and on his shoulders make contributions and impact on the world. But when you get the opposite message from your own father, you don't know how to process it because you admire your father, you're impressed with him, and if your own father thinks that you're a loser, well, gee, maybe you are. And so how do you outlive that? And just before we come back to John, I'm, I'm just wondering, Major, you know, you've looked at this holistically. You've spoken to practitioners. You've spoken to people like Dr. Charney. Uh, you've, you've looked at this in the round. Like, what did you think of Hansen going in and, and did you come out of... The, the, the process of making this podcast at the same place? Or did your, did your view of him change? Did you feel more empathetic towards him? Were you more angry towards him? Or what, what was your journey like uh, in, in the podcast? It's a, it's a great question. I would say, in the main, the journey ended where it began. Uh, I did not come to view Robert Hansen more sympathetically than I did at the beginning. I didn't view him more harshly. I came to view him more comprehensively came to have a deeper understanding of the damage, and the damage is pronounced. And David Charney, Dr. Charney, and I had this conversation in which I said at one point, Dr. Charney, lots of people have a rough relationship with their father, and they don't hand over the most damaging secrets about the federal government at the height of the Cold War, which Robert Hansen did. And he said, of course they don't. That's right. That's not a justification. It's just part of the puzzle. It's part of the psychological makeup that made not only Robert Hansen tick, but made him tick erroneously and dangerously to our country. Um, We talked to more than 50 people for this podcast. We have 84 hours of tape. There's not a single voice relevant to this story we have not talked to at length. We go into the story about Robert Hansen and his father in episode one. Uh, And in the eight episodes of this show, you will come to know everything on the plus side, because there are people who were colleagues like David Major who liked and respected and admired Robert Hansen. We do not run him down relentlessly. There are those people like David Major who, upon hearing the news, convulsed in agony because they liked and admired Robert Hansen so much. They were few in number, but they're not insignificant to this story. And we tried to be fair about that, that the portrayal, we did not ghoul eyes Robert Hansen. We did not turn him into some sort of perpetual 24-hour-a-day monster. He wasn't. There were parts of him that were redeemable. And coming to, the, coming to terms with that is what you have to come to terms with in every story. It's not just one thing. It's a lot of things. And being content with that and satisfied with that and being only a vessel to let people come to understand all of its natures is what I consider the best part of journalism. So that's what we try to do. David? I'd like to add one anecdote that wouldn't have occurred except for Dave Major. Dave Major ran a great company and did lots of training. And on one occasion, he asked me to 
get up in front of an audience of people taking his courses and discuss the handsome case. In the audience was one of the other people working for David, who was Paul Paul Moore. Paul Moore was Bob Hansen's best friend in the Bureau. And at a certain point, me having spent hours and hours with Bob Hansen in, in the jail cell, I, I had to think about who would portray him as an actor if they did a movie. It just was a thought that passed my mind. And the reason that it came to me is because I really knew who I thought it should be. Um, because physically, the actor looks somewhat like Bob Hansen, speaks a bit like him, and is a mix of quirky and witty. Witty. Likeable, but annoying a bit. <laughs> Who was that actor? And I, I give this intro in front of the audience, and somebody steals my thunder. It is Paul Moore on the side of this audience, who shouts out, before I can say the name, Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) And I just, my jaw dropped because that's exactly the actor that I had in mind. We had never discussed it before, Paul and me, and yet we both picked the same actor. And that gets to your point about the complexity and that there were sides to him that were interesting, he was amusing, he could be knowledgeable, he could be difficult, he could be annoying, all these things wrapped together. There you go. And I think in the podcast that that comes across, so there's the episode where with Priscilla, where he's you're, you're following this episode along and he's very tender and sweet and gentlemanly to someone who, let's be honest, life is not necessarily given the best set of cards but then at the end just when you've got the sympathy it gets taken away from you again so you kind of you, you go on a bit of a journey with him don't you and the, the sure. podcast too sure and and for those who are not familiar with uh, the name priscilla sue gailey and the robert hansen story uh, she was an exotic dancer uh worked at joanna's 1819 club on m street and robert hansen befriended her and the assumption is instantly we must have befriended her for sexual reasons. That was not part of it at all. It was a completely platonic relationship. And Priscilla Sue Gailey, in all the retellings of the Hanson story, has always been given the same dismissive, judgmental label. Stripper. That's all Priscilla Sue Gailey is, stripper. Priscilla Sue Gailey is a human being, person. And through the great work of Sarah Cook, on my team, took many, many months. We found Priscilla. We talked to her. She gave a couple of interviews right after Hanson was arrested, but for the passage of years, she has come to understand what this wonderful year in her life in which Robert Hanson showered her with gifts, treated her, like she said, a princess, a whirlwind of absolute gentlemanliness, charm, non-sexual affection that she'd never experienced in her entire life. She felt transported into a place It seemed so unreal and joyous to her. Many years later, she's now looked back on it and come to the conclusion that he was setting her up. 
that he was going to use her in some way to be a dead drop person for him, to hand something off, to be a conduit. And she now feels that it was entirely chewing her up to set her up for something. And it's a terrible realization for her. That's a journey she took in her actual lived life. And it was imperative for me and my team, once we found Priscilla and listened to her, that she give her chance, her one and only chance to speak for herself. And my hope is remove permanently, for anyone who listens to this podcast, that designation, that dismissive, judgmental designation of stripper. She's a human being. She's a person. She lived a life that intersected with Robert Hansen and her perspective on his psychological makeup, his being, his willingness to use people is as relevant as any others in this story. We found her. She's there. And we're proud that she's in there. And again, I'm not just saying this because you're here, Major, but uh, you and the team, I thought you've done a fantastic job of, of humanizing her. And I actually thought that the episodes that I've listened to, I thought that was one of the most moving parts so far. David? One quick question, uh, point I want to make. You know, um, I wouldn't be here if I didn't ask for and get permission from Bob Hansen to tell his, his story, to educate the IC, the intelligence community, and other people about what his journey was like, which was a very freeing thing for me personally. But, but, there was one topic that he forbid me to talk about, and that was Priscilla. Take wow. that for what you want. Wow. And, and just thinking about this case on the round, uh, John, h- how does the FBI learn from these types of cases? Like, like your role as the, as the FBI historian, how does it bank knowledge? How does it learn from the past? Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. How, how instructive is the... Like, does everybody who goes to the academy learn about Robert Hansen? Like, just give us a little bit more of, uh, of the institutional, the way that Robert Hansen has been institutionalized in the FBI. It's an interesting question, Andrew. I mean, as part of formal curriculum in the Bureau, I don't know what role it specifically plays. I do know that the CI officers I've talked to are all aware of the case. And often, um, you know, know a fair bit. So certainly uh, something is conveyed there. The idea of learning from this, though, I think is incredibly important. And, you know, part of what I've tried to do, at least, you know, in, in my capacity, which is publicly oriented, has been to talk about the role of the case, especially in some of the broader issues. Um, you know, one that, that fascinates me is just the issue of the insider threat, the mole hunt, the hunt for these spies. And, and I've had the opportunity to talk about how, you know, how so much begins in 1985 when the CIA and the FBI and even the British um, are losing sources in the Soviet Union and want to know why. And it leads to multi-agency hunts for the spies. And of course, through the 90s, Edward Lee Howard, who, you know, defects to the Soviet Union, is obviously one source, but there's more that can't be explained. And 
more sources keep coming out. Maybe it's we've got Aldrich Ames now in the mid-90s. Maybe now we've got everybody. But no, if we look at all the losses, there's something more. And, of course, that more ends up being Hanson. But in, in the process, as, as you well know, there was someone in the CIA who was focused on. And the lessons from this case is something I think the entire intelligence community can learn from because it shows how a mistaken identification can harm the community as much, perhaps, as finally stopping or, or realizing that you've been betrayed for so long. I think one of the interesting things about this case and also Ana Montes, for example, is that it exposes some of the institutional fissures, some of the areas where uh, communication and connections not functioning properly. It, it sort of throws them into relief. Well, it does throw them into relief. It also highlights the issue that simply as part of the structure of our federal government, the executive branch is split up into many different pieces, often with overlapping or even sometimes conflicting responsibilities. The FBI and the CIA often work very well together, but there are significant institutional differences. Their job is to gather intelligence, to inform policymakers. Our job is, first and foremost, to enforce our national laws, even including those national security laws. And it means that when we gather evidence, we have to answer to a different standard. The courts expect something that the president doesn't expect. And we have to meet those demands as well. And that does create hurdles sometimes. And we have to figure out ways to work around them. And sometimes how it goes can, you know, after the Ames case, you know, in in the Bureau, we start to get some pushback on how much should the criminal and the national security sides mix. And, you know, there are debates about how much of a wall there actually was and so forth. And yet there was something that prevented flow of communication, even within the Bureau, between the counterintelligence and the criminal investigative side mm-hmm. to some extent. And those sorts of things as they come out, and then, you know, simply the, the human cost of that kind of betrayal both for those who are accused or suspected um, mistakenly and those who are betrayed by the one who it turns out to be in the the long run have lasting repercussions that we do have to deal with and don't always recognize, even in hindsight. And real real quickly, uh, the Hansen case was so big and so important that there was an inspector general's report done on it There's a 36-page summary that's available for the public to read. There's a 300-page classified report and a 600-page classified report. There's also a separate commission that was headed by former FBI Director William Webster that looked into all of this. David Major a while ago said that he's been polygraphed eight times. It will astonish you in this audience to to learn, if you don't know it already, that in his entire 22-year career at the FBI, Robert Hansen was polygraphed precisely zero times. That's changed now at the FBI. There is a five-year rotation minimum on polygraphing, and if you're in counterintelligence or other more sensitive areas, it's more frequent. Not once in his entire career was was Robert Hansen ever polygraphed. He was never given even a preliminary financial audit. In one of his debriefings, he said if he'd ever been audited at any level financially, he would have been detected. And 
as we go into very elaborate detail in episode four, which we released last Thursday, there were plenty of reasons in hindsight in which the FBI could have looked at these things and say, hmm, maybe we ought to take a look at this person. But that didn't happen. I think one thing in the podcast that comes out that's really fascinating is the uh, betraying the continuity of government plan, which is just, you know, D- D- David Major mentioned this, mentions this in the podcast as well, which is just hugely important. Thanks for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up on next week's show. So these young men use the Navajo language to send messages, secret messages over the radio waves in the South Pacific and many of the islands where they were stationed. Um, the Japanese could not decipher these um, messages. They tried And it wasn't until towards the end of the war that they realized that it was a Native American language. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast at spymuseum.org or on Twitter at INTL spycast. If you go to our page, thecyberwire.com forward slash podcasts forward slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm Aaron Dietrich, and your host is Dr. Andrew Hammond. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Emily Renz, Afua Anakwa, Ariel Samuel, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Ivan. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artifacts, the International Spy Museum.